Anybody else catch any Pokemon this morning? This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hire to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Ruby Rogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 271 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Jessica Kerr. Good morning. Coraline Ada Emke. Hi, everybody. Sam Livingston Gray. Bringing back the wacky intro quote, one rogue at a time. Help me out here, Robes. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Go check out railsremoteconf.com. Uh, we have a special guest this week, and that is Justin Weiss. Hello from Seattle. Do you want to give us a brief introduction? Yeah, sure. I'm Justin Weiss. Uh, I'm the director of software development at Avo, uh, where we help people find legal help that they need. Of course, like everyone else, we're hiring. I occasionally write at justinweiss.com, uh, and I wrote a book, Practicing Rails, which is about learning Rails without getting overwhelmed. Nice. Now, the What's top- the point of learning Rails without getting overwhelmed? I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you've uh, if you've seen that. There's the there was a um, picture that was going around uh, a while back of like all of the things that you need to know in order to uh, to be a Rails developer, and it just looks like this multi tentacled octopus that's trying to attack you. That's really right. been Rails all along, I feel. But <laughs> well, back at the beginning of Rails, we all had to already know this stuff and more. And Rails actually reduced the things we had to think about. Oh, that's very true. Back when I learned it, we could learn everything from uh, the one pragmatic programming book. At least that's how I learned it. Yeah, and that's uh, still usually the one that that I recommend for at least getting a decent overview of everything. But there is definitely a lot to dig into. Now, that's the Agile Web Development with Rails, I think is what it's called or something like that. Oh, Pragmatic is the publisher. Yes, so the topic is actually problems that new developers don't realize they have. There's a little more to it than that, but I'm curious to know how, because I think what we're talking about here with Rails ties into problems that new developers don't realize they have. So I'm curious, what do new developers run into that we just kind of don't think about as experienced people? Well, I think that the immediate solution you go into when somebody comes into learning something new and ha- gets stuck is like, oh, they need to, they need more resources. They need the right resource that fits them. And what I've kind of found just by talking to a bunch of people that have, uh, you know, written into me tr- after writing into one of my articles or that kind of thing is that uh, it's a lot less about finding the right resource or just by cramming knowledge into your head. But that more of the problems come with like managing your emotional state, managing your time, managing uh, your priorities. There's a little bit of this desire to, you know, do everything right from day one to to try to just grab as much knowledge as you possibly can. And that just has not been successful for a lot of people that I've that I've talked to. You make new programmers sound human. Yeah, I know. It's uh, kind of funny. I, I mean, I, I don't know what the last thing each of uh, each of you learned or the last big thing each of you learned is, but it probably went pretty similarly where it's not so much about like finding all the resources. It's about like, how do I just keep 
hammering at this? And how do I keep the desire to keep hammering at this until I finally get it? Starting a new job is that like that picking up a new code base and figuring out how all the infrastructure works and how anybody ever gets anything done. I'm three months into GitHub and I'm still figuring that out. Yeah, three months is just getting started. Yeah. Well, if you're lucky, they have a really small system and it it only takes that long to figure it out. But when you get into large, complicated systems, even if you're focusing on one piece, you're still dealing with how it interacts with everything else. And even how you interact with everyone else. Yes. So, Justin, how much of this do you think is the fault of, not the fault, but I think about like, people coming out of boot camps and at boot camp they're all working on greenfield apps and they're learning the latest javascript framework and they're working on edge rails and suddenly they get their first job and they're looking at a rails 3.2 application using only jquery and they're like what am i even doing here yeah i mean that's one of the reasons that you see at, at a lot of uh, successful companies mentorship and uh and training being such a big thing I mean, it's everybody, at least that I've uh, that I've met it uh, in my career, has wanted to learn, has wanted to grow and get better, and sometimes those resources just are not there. Well, so my uh, my undergrad advisor once made a really interesting comment that sometimes uh, calendar time is the thing that really matters. Um, I feel like there's when you're learning stuff, there are there are a couple of processes that go on in your brain. There's chunking, which is where you learn to identify patterns of things and then put a label on that pattern so you can keep it as one thing in your head. And then there's just plain the process of neural pruning, where after you've learned a new skill, your brain sort of makes space and makes that skill more efficient. And both of those things, I think, just take calendar time. So I wonder if maybe one, at least for myself, uh, one of the fallacies that I had to get over was that the idea that I could be good at everything right away or anything <laughs> even. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I used to say like when it came to some of the things that I, it seemed like I was naturally good at that it wasn't that I was naturally good at it. It was just that I had seen it before. And, uh, you know, like if I was in like say high school math and I had already independently read something like, you know, a year or two ago that was related to that, it was a lot easier for me to pick it up. It wasn't that I was naturally attuned to it it's just that i had seen it before so you're naturally good at the stuff that you've been prepped for over the years <laughs> <laughs> exactly you're naturally good at the stuff you've been practicing your whole life i mean i did say it a little bit tongue-in-cheek but it really is true it's the things that i look at and i go yeah i've seen that before or i can relate to that that really those are the things that seem natural i mean sometimes there's something that's really new that for whatever reason the way that I think just lines up neatly with it. But yeah, for the most part, when I'm learning something new, it really depends on how much experience I have with something that looks a lot like it. Which begs the question if there is anything new in computer science. No, Lisp and Smalltalk did it all already. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> the more I read, the more that I, uh, I start to uh, realize that most of these things are not all that new. Yeah, I want to say that we we need to add more resources, but you just mentioned that it's really not about resources. It's not about giving people the right book or writing a tutorial as much as it is giving them the psychological resources to cope. Yeah, I mean, the one of the uh, biggest things that uh, that I've found successful for the people that have emailed in and, and uh, I've talked to that way is that the biggest problem is uh, is giving up. Like, that's really the only way to fail. And so, like, how do you prevent uh, giving up? Well, you have that desire to keep going. You have that confidence that you're starting to get it, that you're starting to see some successes. 
And so if you can find a way to just repeatedly see those successes as you grow through your learning career, you're going to have that motivation to keep going. So I want to ask then, what what is a success? I mean, is it an attaboy or pat on the back or whatever you want to call that? Or is it, oh, look, I made it work. Or is it passing tests? Can it be any and all of those? I think it's any and all of those. But um, at least for, for most people, I know it's that uh, seeing what you've been building actually working in the real world. It's like, I did that. That's really cool. Yeah, I was talking to somebody who's uh, fairly early on in their career just last week, and uh, I asked them if they had a particular specialty that they were interested in, you know, front or back end, so I could figure out where to steer them. And uh, they said something interesting, which was that uh, at that point, they were still just amazed that they could type things in and, and make the computer do anything. And so it was a little bit premature to be picking a specialization, but I, uh, that was interesting. It, it uh, reminded me of a perspective that I've long forgotten. Yeah, I mean, if uh, I think if a teacher can just keep sparking that, that's so cool reaction, it's going to be successful. So are there things that uh, as a more senior developer, I can I can do to maybe guide people towards those wins or uh, hints or perspectives I can impart? Or is it basically just, you know, here, go into the cave, have your epiphany and you might come out the other side? I think uh, sharing stories can be really useful. So like, yeah, you know, I, I actually ran into this same kind of thing, you know, last month or a couple of years ago or when I was just starting out. And, you know, this is how it, uh, it affected me. This is what I learned from it. And uh, this is how, like, I moved on. Part of this is, is also just ha- having people realize that, like, no, it's not just you that's running into this problem. Like, you're one in a long, 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 long line of programmers that have run headfirst into that brick wall. Opposite question. What are some things that senior developers do that really discourage and hurt earlier beginner programmers? I think a lot of it is when the senior developer is convinced that they are explaining it correctly and that the problem is that the junior developer can't get it. And I'm, I'm one that I'll, I will almost always put the, the responsibilities on the person who's explaining it and not the responsibility of the person who's receiving it to understand and Sometimes that can, that means explaining it in several different ways with several different metaphors or with, you know, different kinds of language or using different examples or just really trying to figure out how you can match your communication style with the person that is receiving the information from you or that you're communicating with um, in order to make sure that they come away with it having learned something. And never, ever, ever saying, oh, that's really easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you solve this problem? Oh, simple. You just... Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know if uh, if invoices and light items were good enough for our neck bearded forefathers. Gosh, darn it. They're good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a slew of words to avoid. Just simple, easy, obvious, straightforward. Trivial. Oh, oh, yeah. Good one. Yeah. I mean, anything that's just going to like shut down the conversation and indicate that like I'm not going to spend time on you because you should, you should understand that. It's just going to be like crushing. Left is an exercise for the reader. But we don't use those words straightforward, easy, just. I mean, we're not trying to crush anyone. That's, we don't remember what it was to not know that. And having spent years learning and accumulating knowledge on something like SQL, I have no recollection of not understanding that. But exactly like you said, Justin, it is the teacher's responsibility to assume the context of the learner. And hey, as senior developers, we get paid pretty well, and this is one of the reasons we do. So we should suck it up and get better at explaining. 
and not ask people to already understand things just because we do. There's a book that Dave Hoover wrote called Apprenticeship Patterns, and he co-authored it, and I do not remember his co-author's name, and I apologize for that. But he talks about a boxcar, like something called boxcar theory, where the best person to teach a new, an early career developer is someone who is three or six months ahead of them, and so on up the chain. Because they still have that memory of like what it was like when they were first learning, oh, what, what is Active Record all about? Or, you know, what, what do I do in a controller? And they have that empathy still based on their recent experience and their recent memory. And that they become the better teacher than the senior person who has, you know, it, whose experience is so far in the past that we can't really recall what it's like to be a, a beginner anymore. I think the same idea is put forward in Pragmatic Thinking and Learning by Andy Hunt. And he basically says that somebody that who is basically the next level up the chain in the Dreyfus model is the person that can explain it better because their understanding is closer to what the person who's trying to learn it has. And I think it's the same idea, just framed a different way. There's an important implication of that, which is if you've been learning programming for three or six months, then you are the best person to teach that person who just walked in the door. So everyone is the best teacher for somebody. And that really emphasizes the fact that to be a good developer, you have to be a teacher. And it doesn't matter at what level you are. Teaching is an essential skill for all developers. Wait, are you implying that as a senior developer, my job is not just to crank out code faster than anybody else can? Hey, even coding is teaching the computer how to do something. Or more Wait. importantly, teaching the people who come after you to maintain it, how to maintain it and why you did it that way. <laughs> yeah. We actually just had a conversation about this um, at work where we were trying to figure out, like, you know, what are some of these responsibilities that you that you have that you may not be thinking about as you uh, grow through your development career? And one of the things that that we were talking about as uh, you know, interesting was that even as you're growing as an individual developer, like you're you're growing much, much more as a teacher and as a communicator. And that there was a question that we, we still don't have a great answer to. But uh, is there a role for somebody who is a like fantastic developer, but is not trying to improve their communication, their edu like their teaching skills, those kinds of things? Is that a rock star ninja? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, or the, uh, yeah, the architect that sits in their office all day drawing up diagrams and that kind of thing. Yeah, yesterday, at least yesterday, as of when we record this, um, Brandon Hayes posted an interesting uh, thing on his blog called The Conjoined Triangles of Senior Level Development. And it's, uh, it's well worth reading the whole thing, um, but he talks about different components of the responsibility of a senior as being, you know, he has this Venn diagram of connectedness. Uh, leadership and technical capability, but even that doesn't capture everything he was saying. So just go read the blog post. I'll put it in the show notes. But yeah, I thought it was a really interesting um, take on not just being technically competent. Going back to that Venn diagram, though, um, he has the intersection between technical capability and leadership as architect. But left out of that part is all of the stuff under connectedness, which is like mentorship, honesty, uh, empathetic development, <laughs> all that other stuff, which is why I sort of flippantly said architect. But yeah. Are there still architects? I, I mean, I think it depends on what you mean by an architect. Like it's 
probably maybe not somebody that just sits in their like sits in their office and draws diagrams all day, but somebody who talks to all the various teams that are working on all the different things and can kind of create a mental map of everything that's going on and to be able to like communicate out areas where there might be redundancies or uh, areas where there's stuff that's working really, really well that should be brought to another part of the, the team or somebody who, who just has like a more bird's eye view of the system. That's true. Um, Sam just pointed out in chat that the question, are there still architects in the case membership in the startup-ish culture? I did work at one big company in the last seven years, and they were definitely not startup-y. They were very corporate-y, and every team had an architect. So I guess there are still people with that job title, and that used to be a legitimate aim. It used to be a legitimate career path for a developer. It's like, oh, senior Ouch. developer, architect. And we seem to be moving away from that. Or we personally are moving away from enterprise jobs and into Silicon Valley jobs. Yeah, I would argue that architecture is being democratized for better or for worse. We are all becoming architects. And operations and security. The age of the generalist. Which just makes things incredibly more harder for new developers. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) What I've seen is at uh, companies is more of this pushing decisions to the people best suited to make them, which are typically like frontline developers, that kind of thing. And so in that sense, you might not have an architect who can dictate a direction. There's a little bit more of this communicating why it's the right way to go, um, soliciting input from the people that are actually working on the uh, actually building the the tools and the software and, and that kind of thing. And then leading the change more than it is like pushing the change. How well does that work? And I am famously critical of agile methodologies because I think that thinking in two-week increments is stupid and not planning beyond the next two weeks is stupid. So how well does that work under those circumstances when you're like, this is the best possible solution that I can create in two weeks? I think that it's it's um, where some of the the role of an architect or from some, somebody that can take a step back and say, you know, these are these little, uh, you know, these steps in different directions. Now, what does this look like? How does this all fit together? And is it worth even trying to make these things fit together? What's the value that we're trying to get out of uh, an overall system design? And finding the places where you can put the most value into that and then trying to uh, get everybody else on board with that. But whose responsibility is that now? And so that's where I do kind of see the the role of an architect in a even, you know, some of the more modern companies that are starting up. I see the role of architect as someone who has overlap between teams, perspective overlap, and can communicate what they learn from that to the team and communicate what they learn from their team outward. And it becomes, yes, you have a vision. Yes, you're leading people in making the technical stuff better. But more than that, you're in charge of having a broader perspective, a perspective outside the two weeks. I think this confusion, though, over what an architect is and what all the roles are and why do we focus on two-week sprints and and all of this discussion that we're having that we've kind of veered off into, I mean, imagine how much harder it is for somebody that's brand new to come in. And it's like, okay, well, then whose job is it to really kind of have that overarching vision? And if it's not clear and if it's kind of everyone, then that's that much more that that junior dev kind of has to figure out. You know, well, then since I'm not as experienced, do I get to talk about trade-offs? Uh, since I'm not as experienced, is that part of my job too? And do I have to learn about that? And holy cow. 
And since I'm not as experienced, does that mean I'm not allowed to pair with a senior person and, quote, waste their time? (laughs) (laughs) Which is a common anti-pattern. I think a lot of it comes down to context, too. Like we hand an early career developer this, oh, you're going to build this widget and you have two weeks to build it. And we don't have time to explain to you why it's important or what it's going to be used for. You just need to crank out this code and make it work. I can't imagine why they would fail if you do that. One wonders. I'm curious about this existential crisis. Okay, yeah, yeah. So so I'm wondering, Justin, do you have an opinion on, like, the existential crisis of software development, as in where we have to let go of having control over the computer and actually ever getting our software right? Absolutely. If you look at what a lot of newer developers are talking about or or frustrated with, um, there's a lot of this, okay, well, like... I started learning how to do unit testing or TDD, and then I uh, saw a RailsConf talk where we were talking about how TDD is dead. And then I started trying to figure out, okay, well, what about uh, integration testing? Well, then I started reading a blog post about how we should an integration test because they're, you know, they're flaky and they're a scam. Take time, and yeah, exactly. And so at that point, you just completely lost, and it's like, should I even bother learning anything because? I'm not going to be doing it right anyway. And uh, I think the development community is famous for just conflicting arguments that uh, it's really difficult for even experienced developers to really, uh, you know, fall, to really justify one side or the other fully. It's more of a like, okay, yeah, kind of, kind of both. I think you should so, integrate your units end to end in your tests. So I, <laughs> at the risk of taking that list of things that a new developer needs to know and making it even longer, uh, I feel like, Maybe we should add a basic course in rhetoric to teach people how to be persuasive and how to understand how to make arguments well and acknowledge in those arguments where they are uncertain of things because that's something that developers are famously not good at. (laughs) I don't think you presented your case well, Sam, and I disagree with you. (laughs) Well, that's because you're wrong. <laughs> there's there's uh, something I think it's called like the uh, the psychology of small differences or uh, or something like that where like the, the smaller the difference between two positions in an argument the stronger the argument or like the more vehement the argument and so you tend to see the biggest arguments around the things that uh, in the end don't really matter all that much. There's an Emo Phillips joke about that too. We've been talking a lot about senior developers and architects and people kind of higher up in the chain and what their responsibility is here. But I wonder sometimes if we don't talk enough about the responsibility of the students as well. So the newer people, what can they do or what should they be doing in order to take advantage of this or to help the senior people or architects or whoever it is that they've got to learn from and pick this stuff up from to help them? And how can they apply themselves to learning so that they can learn the things that they need to in order to contribute? Ask lots and lots and lots of questions. As I've grown, you know, more senior in my uh, my career and as a developer, like I, the more I've realized that part of my responsibility is to ask the obvious questions and to ask the questions to which the answers may seem obvious or where like everybody's kind of scared to ask them because they're afraid of uh, not looking smart. Yeah, it, you can always you can always phrase it as checking assumptions. It's great to check assumptions, and you can you can think of an obvious question that way. Oh, I like that. I'm stealing that. <laughs> <laughs> Stolen, gone. Um, another thing I do with some of the young women that I mentor is I I make them read the API and practice the API because 
something that you said earlier, Justin, about like, oh, I've seen this problem before. Sometimes, you know, even if you don't remember the syntax, just knowing that, oh, there's a method on enumerable that does exactly this thing that I need to do right now can be like really valuable in getting unstuck. Oh, yeah. So it would be like if you're learning to cook, go taste all the spices so you know what your options are. Yeah, it's very much an interesting analogy. Yeah, I think uh, back when James was on the show, he um, at least one time he he mentioned that as being his sort of secret weapon. Is when everybody else stopped reading after the first part of the pickaxe, he started reading in the in the API documentation, and and uh, he's able to pull out a lot of tricks out of his sleeve because of that. Another thing I think is um, investing the time up front in figuring out how to recover when things go wrong. Because that's going to give you, once you start to really understand some of that, that gives you the confidence to try new things and to push the boundaries of, uh, of your knowledge. And one of the things that I like to spend lots of time on with, with new developers is teaching them how to, uh, how to explore the system, how to debug, how to read stack traces, how to uh, figure out what an error message actually means without you know, just trusting Google every time. Yes. Um, oh. And an investment in that means that you can kind of let them go off and play for a little bit longer, and they're not going to worry that they're going to break things irrecoverably. They're, they have a little bit of a chance to recover before they can come to you and say, like, hey, I'm, I'm stuck. Can you help? Yeah, stack traces look scary, but oh my god, stack traces are the best thing ever. I remember going <laughs> from C to Java, and the stack trace was like, oh, I can see what called what and what and what and what and what. And sometimes I just look at the stack trace even like after I figured out the problem, just because oh, you can you can see the invisible structure of the program sometimes in those. Oh, they're gorgeous. <laughs> totally. Yeah, but sometimes uh, back traces do cause seg faults for our new people in their brains. Yeah. They're scary at first. I mean, until you've already become accustomed to like C error messages, which are like just as terrible, except no information. Somebody wrote a gem a while back that would actually read the last line of a stack trace out loud using say. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. All right. I I have to ask this question. Uh, David was tweeting at me this morning when he said he couldn't make it on the call. And we've been talking about asking questions and finding solutions, but sometimes we get hung up on asking the right questions because we don't realize we have a blind spot there. And so we just kind of pass over it when we should ask a question. And his question is, how can new developers obtain objective evidence of their blind spots? For example, if you don't know how badly you can't estimate, how to rigorously approach estimation? Yeah, that's a good question. I've seen I've seen it be successful just like uh, checking your assumptions with people. So like, hey, this is what I came up with. How does it sound? Like, am I missing anything? Some of it, I, I think, is also just getting in tune with uh, yourself when you start to feel like, you know, maybe this doesn't feel right. Or, um, you know, even in my, my limited experience, I think that there might be something going on here that I'm not quite sure about. And sometimes, and, you know, I've experienced this myself, like, when I don't know if something is uh, going right, like, and I can't even explain why it doesn't feel right, uh, just going to somebody else and saying like, hey, this doesn't feel right. I'm not exactly sure why. Can you help me out? And they'll be able to just get it right away. Yeah, but isn't a blind spot somewhere where it does feel right, even though it may not be? Sometimes, but I, I mean, that's that's kind of where I think combining that with also just making a habit of checking your work with somebody that um, is, I mean, you don't even, it doesn't even have to be somebody more experienced than you because, uh, you know, we all have blind spots in completely different places. 
Okay, I'm going to throw out the rest of his question then, and then we can move on. But he also said, also, do we have a confirmation bias that our spots are not blind? Will we resist evidence to the contrary? And how do we notice or overcome that? In other words, I think what he's asking is, so we assume we don't have a blind spot in an area, and that gives us a confirmation bias that nobody calls us out for it. So it, we must not have a blind spot there where in reality we probably do. I guess I kind of already asked that. But uh, do we resist evidence to the contrary? In other words, when people tell us we're wrong, do we tend to put up our back and say, no, I must be right? And how do you get, how do you get past that? Yeah, I, I think that's super common. I mean, uh, there, I can't count the number of like, you know, meetings or conversations or things I've been into where, you know, me and others around the table are totally convinced that we're right and yet each coming to completely opposite conclusions because mm -hmm. we're each missing something that we don't even know we're missing. And that's a, a hard one. I think that it takes practice in being open to saying, like, this is what I think. This is the evidence that I think is leading me to that conclusion. What am I missing? We're talking about these blind spots in code, but it can also be in the way that we interact with people, too. I see code as, as also interaction. Um, a lot of the same ideas and and things that it go into better communication also go into writing better code because code communicates. There was a, uh, a book, uh, The Fifth Discipline, where there was one of the sections of that that really resonated with me was this idea of balancing um, inquiry and advocacy. And so like mentally making a switch between I'm in discovery mode, I'm trying to learn more about what the truth of the situation really is with the rest of the people in this room. And then turning that, uh, and then once you feel like there's a good baseline, turn that off and then turning your advocacy on and actually trying to come to a decision. And so I think that that can be kind of helpful for figuring out those uh, blind spots and, and uh, that kind of thing. There was this interesting study done by a sociologist named Solomon Ash. And um, I use this in one of my talks. I don't know how well it would come across in, in text. He would, he would arrange a group, a line of seven or eight participants and only one or two of them were actual participants in the experiment. The others were Confederates. And he would hold up a card with a line on it. And he would ask them to study the card. And then he'd hold up another card with three lines on it labeled A, B, and C. And he built it as a, a spatial intelligence test and would ask participants which of the three lines, A, B, or C, is the same length as the line on the first card. He found that if the Confederates who would be asked the question first lied about um, which line was actually the right size, that depending on the group size, up to 40% of the actual experimental subjects would agree with the wrong answer. So I can see that happening very, very often with... A new developer who has an idea about what something about what the right thing is, but is going to go along with the so-called experts, the more senior people for fear of appearing stupid or appearing wrong. I think conformity is a is a huge problem. And we should be encouraging like junior developers who have new perspectives on things to share those perspectives because they can challenge the the way of thinking that we as more senior people have fallen into. I think that's great context to set with a, uh, with a new developer as they join is, is like, it is partially your responsibility to check our assumptions because we've, you know, we've been doing this for a while. We're kind of already locked into some of our, our own ideas and like part of the value you bring to the table is your, your insight, your questioning. 
Yeah, I think that the, you have to be careful with that and how you frame it. I think telling a new person not to the team, it is your responsibility to check our assumptions won't go very well unless you also demonstrate that behavior yourself of yeah. like honestly questioning your own decisions, demonstrating when you interact with other developers that you can take questions and feedback well. <laughs> yep. Yes. Yeah, I think the anecdotal uh, story to that is the person who is learning to make a roast from their mom and the mom cuts the ends off the roast and then puts it in the oven. And uh, so then the mom gets asked, why do you cut the ends off the roast? She says, I don't know. I'll ask my mother. And so they go ask the grandmother, why do you cut the ends off the roast? And she says, I don't know. Let me go ask my my mother. And so they go ask the great-grandmother. And the great-grandmother says, well, I only had a pot so big. And so I cut off the ends so it would fit. And having somebody new ask those questions and then making it safe to get an answer, which is what you know I think Sam was leading toward, and also showing that you're willing to ask that question, which the, the mother and grandmother in this case do, then you find out, oh, well, we've been wasting the ends of the roasts for two generations. And you make the process better. Yeah, I think uh, you touched on safety a little bit. And I think that a lot of what we're talking about kind of all rolls back to, to that, to making it safe to experiment, to make it safe to learn, to make it safe to ask questions. Yep. Creating safe, safe spaces to fail, too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think I think helping people explore, you know, why did this fail or helping people explore, you know, how did you come to the conclusion that you wanted to try the solution and doing it in a way that it's a learning experience where you're all learning together instead of, uh, well, why did you do it that way? That wasn't, a, you know, we all knew it wouldn't work that way. I, I think I think that's a very healthy way of approaching some of these some of these things. And it's those failures and those trade-offs that we learn when we're new to this that will carry through the rest of our careers. So we've been talking a lot about the role of more senior developers in helping early career developers along. But what about cohorts of early career developers working together? How does, how does that dynamic kind of work? So you, I mean, you worry a little bit, a little bit about that blind leading the blind kind of scenario. And so you want to make sure that there is a, a good path for both of them to grow in a way that takes them towards that path of becoming more experienced developers. But I think that that does help a lot with the idea of safety in that if the person next to you is making, you know, making mistakes that you can um, help, uh, you can help work through and you're making mistakes that they can help you work through, then it helps you both grow together. So one one of the uh, more interesting things that you know that I've learned through the stuff that you know challenges me and uh, and helping other people through the challenges that they run into is that there's a there's a big difference between the difficulty of something and the the scope of something. Like I found that the difficult small scope things are just energizing. They're fun, uh, even if you're bashing your head against the wall. You know, like you have that confidence that like, yeah, with enough time, I can finally learn that when it comes to difficult big scope or even like easy and big scope. That's when you start getting that that crushing feeling, that overwhelming feeling that where do I even start feeling? And so like I, I mentioned that big octopus like diagram way back at the beginning. And one of the bits of advice that works well for that is is just like, OK, well, you know, pick one branch and start learning it. Probably something that's blocking you from getting more work done because that'll make you even more motivated to keep working on it. But Really, like each of those branches that you start getting well in will uh, are getting good at will eventually end up 
reinforcing other branches and reinforcing other branches until uh, eventually you have some sense of everything that you need in order to successfully build an app. And so I, I guess part of that is also um, prioritization, which is just asking yourself, like, what's the next thing? Not thinking about everything, but, you know, what's the next thing? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. So actually on that on that note, one of the questions that I've learned to ask is not what's the next thing, but what's the what's the highest risk thing that I can do next? <laughs> Otherwise, I find I have a tendency to go off into the weeds and like polish one little corner of the application and then leave this giant looming question until it blows the deadline. Always do the hard stuff first. Yeah. If you're doing that, though, how do you keep from getting uh, discouraged that all of the stuff you're working on, at least for the first while, is hard? I think it's still that focus of, um, like, if this is too hard and too big, then can I make it, you know, hard and smaller? Um, Mm. Can I make that hard and smaller until eventually, like, yeah, it's going to be a lot of hard things, but there are going to be things that you're pretty confident that with enough time you you can do and that it'll teach you something while you're doing it. So I, it sounds like maybe part of that is figuring out how to tell yourself, yes, this is hard, but no, it's not what I'm doing right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of the I'm not going to do this list. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Boy, in business, that's a big deal. All right. Well, anything else before we go hit picks? Yeah, I was I was thinking back to uh, how I've learned things over my career, and this may be something that doesn't apply to everybody and their different learning styles. But one of the things that I've found over and over again is that as I'm as I'm trying to make sense of a new concept or a new field, I can learn some facts about it, and I can try to memorize and, and regurgitate those facts. But it doesn't ever really click until I find a theory or an explanation or a perspective behind it that gives that all of the facts a structure to hang on to. And so that even if I misremember or forget a certain fact, I know approximately where in that space it is and I can go looking for it again. Um, Is there a way that we can, we can remind ourselves to do that or that as senior people, we can help new early career people with. I'm a big fan of examples in general, because I feel like seeing enough examples, you can start to mentally create a space that you can extract some of those uh, models out of. Also, just like learning other things in general and encouraging learning about anything and everything gives you a wider uh, variety of mental models that you can start to say, like, this kind of parallels this thing that I've already thought of, or, um, you know, this, uh, this kind of matches this, uh, this thing that I learned a while back. One of the things I do, too, with um, with the people I mentor is I ask them to write down in a journal every Google search that they do and the result that helped them the most with that Google search. So they they have the, um, the additional like memorization activity of actually physically writing it down. And they also have a reference of like, oh, I've done that before and I have that right here. You mean on paper? On paper. <gasps> Tree pulp. Wow. I actually really like that idea. Yeah. Not just for junior people either. Yeah, there was a there was a talk on onboarding that I saw at a RailsConf a couple of years back that recommended that of like as as you start a new job, start a journal. And uh, as you're hiring new people, talk to them about starting a journal where they write down all of their thoughts, all their findings, uh, you know, some of the notes from some of the conversations that they have. And um, just so they can both see that continual progress that they're making as they get used to uh, working in a new environment. And also so that, like, hey, that one command line that everybody has memorized to deploy, like, it's right there. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Well, things seem to have wound down a little bit. So let's go ahead and do some picks. Coraline, do you have some picks for us? 
I have a couple of picks, and they are both emoji-related. I should go on the record and say that when emoji first came out, I hated them and thought they were stupid. And now I kind of rely on them for nuanced conversation. So my first pick is an application called Emoji. It's E-M-O-J. It is a node app created by someone who calls themselves Syndrosaurus, which cannot possibly be their real name. It lets you find emoji from text on the command line. So you merely type emoji and then a string like I love unicorns. And it will spit out emoji related to the text I love unicorns. It is a GitHub project that's really lightweight and it's really interesting. I did a little digging and it uses something called the Dango API. And in looking up the Dango API, I found this article called Teaching Robots to Feel emoji and deep learning. So Dango is a project that um, they fed hundreds of millions of real world cases of emoji and use machine learning to distill it down to a tool that was small and fast enough to predict emoji for you in real time. And like the best example of this that I found was if you type in, in the, the article has like an interactive dialogue box on it. So you can actually like try it out. If you type Beyonce into the little dialogue box, it gives you a crown and a bee because she is Queen Bee, which I thought was like amazing. And it's not just like one-to-one meanings of, oh, this this emoji means heart. It's like combinations of emoji and it's actually learning like cultural meanings of combinations of emoji. Um, whether or not they're recognized as individual symbols. So what a really, really cool, like, application of machine learning and, um, like, a nice documentation of pop culture and how we're using emoji in pop culture. So I thought um, I thought that was absolutely fascinating. So um, those are my two picks. All right, Sam, what are your picks? Well, let's see. I'm going to start by plus one in Coraline's pick from last week. Uh, she recommended uh, The Lies of Locke Lamora, and it sounded fun. So I read it over the weekend, and uh, it was it was a fun little caper. Um, I quite enjoyed that. Um, the other thing I'm going to pick, I have a bunch of books listed here, but I'm going to I'm going to pick something slightly more practical in some sense, uh, and that's Gorilla Tape. Sort of a product plug, but uh, Gorilla Tape is essentially duct tape, uh, but way more so. It's uh, considerably thicker, and the adhesive that they use is much stronger. So I've found that uh, in applications where duct tape has worn off after six months or a year, that Gorilla Tape will just keep two things stuck together that I wanted stuck together, and it will do it for a very long time. And it's fun to work with. Uh, so them's my picks. We should actually point out that Sam's hat is currently secured to his head using Gorilla Tape. <laughs> yes, I was planning to shave uh, later today, but this will be so much more efficient. <laughs> I thought that was a stripe on the hat and sideburns. but All right, I've got a couple of picks I'm going to throw out here. Um, while I was in Chicago this week, uh, we went to a place called, I'm not sure if it's Portillo's or Portillo's. Portillo's. Portillo's, yes. So good. So good. I had me there... Uh, Portillo's beef hot dog and a chocolate cake shake. And <laughs> that was so good. Uh, I got to hang out with some cool folks like Ray Hightower and Corey Haynes and uh, Ryan Francis. So anyway, um, thanks to the folks that came out for that. It was a ton of fun. I also, while I was out there, I wound up getting an iPad Pro with the keyboard and the Apple Pencil. And I have to say that it was 
really nice to just have the one small thing to carry around with me during the conference. I was at Podcast Movement. I could just take notes with the pencil, which was also really nice. And so I'm going to pick all of those things. And then I got an app, I think it's called GoodNote. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But basically what it does is it actually evaluates your handwriting in the notes. And you can actually do a full text search on your handwritten notes, which is really awesome. And uh, anyway, so that that was just terrific at the conference. And then, of course, I'm going to pick Podcast Movement as well. Really enjoyed it. Learned a ton of stuff. And I'm looking forward to next year, which will actually be in Anaheim, California. So, yeah, so those are my picks. Justin, what are your picks? My first one is a book called uh, The Principles of Product Development Flow. It takes all of these ideas about creating software and product from things like Agile and Lean, and uh, it actually uses like math and queuing theory and explains why a lot of those ideas uh, work. It, uh, the writing can be a little bit dense, especially starting out, but you get used to it pretty quickly. Um, and I found it like absolutely mind blowing to read, and totally changed a lot of how I like how I think about that stuff. The next uh, is a it's a guide called uh, How to Write in Plain English. We talked a little bit about communication, and uh, this is a short guide that helps you learn to write more clearly uh, and in a more interesting way. Uh, on the downside, it makes you way more sensitive to all the business speak that you see all over the place. Uh, Wait, that's the downside? <laughs> on, uh, I mean, yeah, it it's, uh, it's definitely makes, uh, makes you cringe when you see a lot of that stuff. What's the uh, ask on that? Yeah. Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, and that is the Just, correct yeah, you, you And uh, yeah, you, you should use the guide, not utilize it. The last one I have is uh, kind of a plug pick for uh, where, I, where I work, uh, Avo. Uh, in an industry where it's super common to switch jobs every two years, uh, I've been there for nine. Um, and we have you know, lots of devs and product people that have been around for three, four, and five years. Um, it's a great place to be with great people, so people tend to stick around. Like I said, we're, we're hiring, and so just ping me if you're interested in uh, talking more. Awesome. If people want to follow up with you, see what you're doing, bother you on Twitter, what are the best ways to do that? Yeah, the best way is definitely Twitter. Um, I'm at Justin Weiss. Uh, that's W-E-I-S-S. And if you're ever in the Seattle area, just uh, ping me. I'm always happy to meet up for coffee, chat about programming and other various things. Very cool. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Thanks for coming and we'll catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join the conversation with the Rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlor. 